everybody, and welcome to the Tech Challenge Podcast. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, the Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Hey, Steve. Ready to discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news? Always, man. I can't awesome. shut up about it. <laughs> We've had a pretty good month uh, uh, going on. So, uh, we really have. Yeah. I'm excited for, what year are we? 2020? 2020. <laughs> <laughs> We're living the future. Uh, I didn't have too much to talk about in terms of home automation, except my robot vacuum cleaners keep getting stuck. Yeah. And part of it, I mean, it is my fault. What are the robot cleaners going to do? Uh, I just haven't solved the problem yet. It just gets stuck on the rug in some places I need right. to fix. They don't have off-road tires, man. No, no. You can't uh, You'll be surprised. They're pretty robust. Really? I mean, there's always the meme of, I left my front door open, and I've never <laughs> seen my robot again. <laughs> it's gone to the wilderness. Has that actually happened to people? <laughs> I'm sure it has. That's actually Why a genius Why would you leave your front meme? door open? <laughs> Maybe oh through the God. cat door or something, or dog door. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, for today, I wanted to talk about uh, International Women's Day. We missed uh, Women's Day due to recordings. We... Uh, it just overlapped with the uh, the day, and I want to talk about an uh, interview I saw from uh, women's women in manufacturing. Uh, they interviewed uh, Missy Miller, and uh, she has some pretty good takeaways about career development. And I just want to mention that um, uh, some of the takeaways that I've noticed, and I think they're pretty solid. Uh, so one, she's currently the regional operations director for Atlas Molded Products, uh, and she has a couple of good takeaways. One is, um, you know, if you feel like you're underutilized. Um, just step up and do something about it. You know, she made the uh, point of she made during this presentation to some of the executives and uh, senior management. And then from there, that kind of propelled her into her new role. So she utilized herself. If she felt yeah, underutilized, exactly. she, she said, utilized yeah. herself. And then later come like, you know, a review or something. Yeah. She was like, look at all this that I did without you telling me to do it. Exactly. And we're in a better spot because of it. it made this happen. Yeah. Awesome. And then the second, the other thing was uh, about mentors. Mentors is uh, uh, a big buzzword. Everyone, not buzzword, is is an actual term, is an actual thing that exists. Oh, yeah. But in terms of, uh, let's see, applying to everyday life, there's still a struggle of how to find a mentor, how to find a mentee. So the actual number of people that are involved in that kind of relationship is really, really low. Yeah. Compared to everyone that talks about it. Everyone says you should have a mentor, which... I don't agree with because I've never had a true mentor that I would say is, yeah, that's someone that trained me. Yeah. Uh, I have had a bunch of managers that did good observation in terms of defining a couple of things I should work on. Then someone that I could say is a mentor, probably not. Yeah. And I, I, I agree because I feel like a lot of people would probably want to be uh, lured into seeing somebody uh, as a mentor that is really just a good friend. Right. And, right. And, 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 you know, to some degree, a good leader. Right. As well. Um, but in, you don't always want a mentor to be like your best friend. Right. So you need, yeah. at the same time, actually, I'm backpedaling a little bit because, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> because your best friends can, can tell you the hard truths. Yeah, baby. You know, sometimes your best friend needs to break you down. Depending on your best friend. I mean, they could be enablers. They could be good habits. Oh, my God. Yeah, you don't want an enabler. It's Um, tough. But, I mean, in my current role, I do see myself as a mentor for other people Mm -hmm. or a developer or a coach. Um, But she makes a really good observation, right? If you don't have someone that you could say is a mentor, just look around you. She uses her peer group and managers to identify, uh, help her identify problems in areas of opportunities. And she does the same thing as with the first thing. She's solves those problems, right? Just looks yeah. around and says, I'm in a solar boat. I don't have a mentor, but there are other ways I can learn, other ways I can improve. Let's look at my peer group and let's look at, you know, the managers that are willing to spend time with me and went about and solved that problem. 
Um, and then one thing that I do find useful is that you know, the concept of observational learning. If you don't have someone that says these are things that you should learn, just look around you and observe people and what are they doing well and why are they doing it? Just copy what they do, right? Nothing wrong with that. So something to think about, you know, the big takeaway from Missy is solve your damn problems. Solve your problems. <laughs> wow. I wonder when robots are going to solve their own problems and when they're going to see humans as mentors <laughs> and when robots are going to see other robots as mentors. Okay, this is too far. That's right. too much meta. Yeah. Okay. We're so, not. We're nowhere near that, so we don't know about any of that yet. So the link to her interviews uh, will be posted in the show notes. I recommend checking it out. That's awesome. What's going on in the test bed, man? Test, there's a lot been going on in the test bed. It seemingly like, man, man, this year's flying by. So let's talk about it. Um, Sharab has coded two amazing programs for our robot arm. Okay. Um, he refuses to use the uh, the 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 cobot's um, HMI software. <laughs> so, uh, which I think is yeah, it's XArm Studio. Sure. Um, I'm, I've been using that. I've been having a great time with it, just fiddling with the settings, just, you know, learning the robot, learning the software, right. feeling it out, you know, just being safe with it. Sharp doesn't uh, want anything to do with that. Sharp is just like, <laughs> I've, I've worked with robots in the past. I want nothing to do with that software. I'm using command lines. He wants to be in the matrix. Yes. <laughs> so much dark screen with green text. And like, that's exactly what he's doing. Yep. So he wrote some great programs and, um, the first one, which uh, I published last week, no, the week before last week, um, his first program, um, he used command lines to engage the cobots uh, teach mode. Okay. So he, he engaged it using his code um, or using codes. Right. Uh, then physically grabbed the robot arm, moved it to one location then moved it to another location, had it do something, and then hit stop on the recording and then sent it home and wrote that all in one long program code. Cool. Um, and with doing that, he essentially controlled or commanded uh, the uh, the robot to throw away a soda can oh. <laughs> into the trash can. Just, awesome. just take it from you, Yep. go around to the other side of the table and... Drop it clean cool. into a trash can. So we really fresh, but uh, like we're great, you know, move and yep. motion. Um, but because it was manually articulated by him, right? Um, and I'm thinking the teach sensitivity on the arm wasn't high enough. Okay. So by turning up the teach sensitivity on the robot arm, when you go into manual mode, mm -hmm. that basically dictates how easy it is to move the arm oh, so okay. like if you can give it a gentle push to move it wherever you want it to go sure if it's the sensitivity is high or if you turn down the teach sensitivity um you really got to like shove it into place right so i don't think the sensitivity was high enough and because of that you can see the the arm actually shake where oh. sharp is like struggling <laughs> to move it into position so it looks really sketchy yeah but the code is is not flawed sure um and it works um so when i explained that to him he was like well i'm just not going to do the manual movement <laughs> anymore i'm going to redo this code so this week or last week i published um his most recent code which was just forget manual uh articulation manipulation of the arm he uh just sent it to coordinates okay just use coordinates sure. right and 
the product of that program is a much more fluid, smoother movement. Sure. And if you go to my blog, um, you will see the uh, that most recent code and the code is actually published on the blog. And um, in that same update, I posted a YouTube video okay. of the actual program running. That's a good point. One thing that uh, I was thinking about as you go through that is if the teach method, uh, if you're teaching the robot through the um, through positioning it manually, if that doesn't work well, you can always get readouts of, so you move it to the position you want, determine where that position is, yeah, and then come back and use that position location that it told you in the readout to reprogram the robot uh, using either the HMI or yes. code. So yeah. that's another kind of workaround. But that's cool. It and, sounds like in his well. code, like so so I published the code because it's really clean. Yeah. And he has comments in there right. showing it's like it seems straightforward, it's doesn't great. It? Yeah. It, it seems so <laughs> straightforward because he's so good at writing code sure. that like you know he throws in comments that tells you exactly what each, you know, right. digit means. Yep. And it, it, you can see the coordinates he's moving to or he's moving the arm to. And it's just really clean um, rem- and well done. That reminds me of when I first tried to do some uh, programming on a single board computer, similar to Pies, but they had like protons or something right. that was released a bunch of years ago. Like the Photon? Photon. The, the Spark Photon? Yeah, yeah, the Spark, yeah. Those things are cool. So I tried to program and I followed the instructions, which is like two or three lines of code. Yeah. I never could get it to work. It seems so simple when I'm looking at it on the instructions, and I think Sharabs is very similar. I'm looking at it. I could do this, and when I actually try and do that, nothing works. Yeah, I, that's I, just I, me. I feel I don't your have pain. That look. I feel your pain. Like in college, you know, yeah. we did a little bit of coding, um, studying physics, and my lab partner that I worked with was great at just like generating code himself, sure. like writing lines, and I could never do it nope. because it's just no. like. Uh, you know, I, I, it, there takes a certain degree of creativity sure. to generate sure. that stuff. What I was good at in college was editing his code. If he okay. had a problem, if he ran into something, it was really easy for me to clean it up That's and good. fix it. And then I could bring his, you know, hundred line code down to like 20. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was good at that. Yeah. But uh, I could not generate it from scratch no, the way he I could. Um, what else we got going on? Next thing. Um this week I am I've been experimenting with using the HMI for the cobot to control the arm to actually open and close the pocket and season closure. Okay. And I've been success I've been successful at safely opening and closing the uh the enclosure to the pocket and see. This is without the end of arm tooling? Correct. Okay. Yeah, so you're just, just with a stump. It. Okay. Just nudging it with a stump, That's making some... sure no collisions. Right. Everything's happy. Collision detection is on. So if it if it noticed a or if it sensed a pressure that was a little too high, sure. it, would, it would have thrown me a code. Yeah. Um, well, it's misleading because there is a collision because you're hitting the. It is. A, it's a controlled it. collision right, right. in this case. But the hinges are fairly lubricated right. well, so it's not much friction. The, the, fr- the hinges are smooth yeah um and also it's the it goes back to a previous uh testbed update on experimenting with collision detection yeah if you have a certain degree of sense we're right we're at the goldilocks collision detection <laughs> sensitivity awesome. so it's like it will detect something that doesn't feel right so like okay. if you grab onto the enclosure yourself and you pull it up to open the enclosure you know you can feel how it's supposed to open sure and you know not to like 
push forward or push back. No, you just go straight up. And as it's as it's opening upwards, then you push it rearward. Yep. Like if you have the collision detection on the arm set just right, the robot will know when it's applying, you know, a, a pressure or movement or force yep. in a direction it shouldn't be. Ah, so gotcha. that's we've we've got that collision detection sensitivity dialed in perfectly. Cool. Um, I just need to record points and actually <laughs> make it a, a program to open and close it. But yeah. other than that, once I figure that out by reading instructions, we'll <laughs> we'll get that and that Good. will go up this week. Good luck. Um, another thing that was really fun, um, Sharab and I have been working with IT. Uh, so Jesse, the director of IT here at AMT and his minion, Sean, I only say his minion not to be, you know, insulting, but because I forget his title, he actually just got a title change so mm, good for sean yeah we're, we're proud of him um but um he's really stepped up with networking and okay. the test bed has its own secluded network nice um because you know we don't want to there's a lot of other people here at amt that do a lot of work on a daily basis and if we crash a network <laughs> and they can't update anything <laughs> on the server then we're really sol and i'm gonna get a stern talking to that sounded like something Russ did about four years ago fortunately <laughs> he just did it on the mobile network true, so like true. it wasn't downing computers yeah. it was just nobody's cell phone worked on the uh <laughs> on the wi-fi on, on, on our yeah, yeah our wi-fi um but yes Russ did do that <laughs> with not a raspberry pi he did it with a uh, unkosher if you will uh network switch because yeah, he needed to yeah. use a router right. or something like that um yeah, so but, they're working on the network yep. and we're getting everything squared away so that we can just instead of me going over to the test bed or Sharp going over the test bed and plugging in an Ethernet cable to our computer. Or if I want to use the pocket and see, I plug in a USB cable to my computer. Mm -hmm. We just want to from our desks be able to log into the test bed mm -hmm. uh, wirelessly. But everything on the test bed is wired together to a sonic wall. Sure. So it's protected. It's stable. You know, we've got good cyber security, cyber physical security, so everything's <laughs> safe over there, but we have ease of use to awesome. not have to play with cables all the sure. time. Um, so IT's helping us out greatly with that, and they mentioned that, you know, you guys have a lot of little devices. You know, there's only like three devices on the test bed, but man, there's a lot of like boxes down <laughs> below, and they, they know what they are, yeah, but like they, yeah. they're just pointing it out, and it's like, well, we do have a Raspberry Pi for every device on the test bed. Right. And the Raspberry Pi is our MT Connect um, agent. Oh, sure. It's running our MT Connect agent. The adapters code that's written and installed on the devices themselves. Uh -huh. um, but the agent has to be run separately. It doesn't have to be, but it is run separately in our case on Raspberry Pis to uh, monitor and stream all that data coming from the machines. Yep. Um, and we've got three Raspberry Pis just laying around hanging around. and you know raspberry pi doesn't have an enclosure from the factory so we've got like these open circuit boards <laughs> just chilling yep. on the test underneath the test bed actually so i went ahead and bought this uh cluster enclosure wow. and put all the raspberry t pies together in a neat little stack um and it is now like the most adorable <laughs> server like, like network server you've ever seen we should and definitely call that our uh data server yeah and i walk walked Agent over to, server i walked over to it when i in, uh, assembled it and i was like behold <laughs> this the most adorable server you've ever seen in your life then this is running mt connect it's the pack of about 
let's say four um, playing cards high. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Four playing card stacks or yeah. uh, sets. Um, yeah. That's high. awesome. Uh, and, and and Doug was over there at the time. He's like, wow, that's cool. You should really put that on the blog. So now we've got more content. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll post yeah. pictures of that so everybody can see that. And it's interesting how much uh, IT infrastructure is required for manufacturing equipment. I mean, just oh, the yeah. quality of life, being able to remotely access the equipment from here. Yeah. The infrastructure required is surprisingly high. I mean, yes. I've, I've done some home networking stuff, so I'm fairly familiar with all the stuff there. But I'm sure it's you wouldn't really think about it. So if I wanted to buy a piece of equipment. I wouldn't think of, say, the several hundred dollars extra required for uh, switches. Um, you just bought a bunch of power strips and a bunch of USB power adapters for the pies and the pies themselves. Yeah. So it, it's, I mean, it adds up fairly quickly. I mean, sure. on a more industrial grade equipment, it's a little different, but there are ancillary hardware that you really don't think about that's required mm-hmm. to support. But but you know, I mean, one of the reasons why we have the test bed is so we go through yeah, all exactly. this yeah. because if if we are experiencing it, people in the factories right. actually producing stuff are going to experience this when yep. they implement stuff. So and I, I like to tell people full disclosure. You know, we have published a white paper in the past on how easy it is to dive into you know, developing your own test bed yep. for research and development, uh, and it doesn't cost a lot. But man. It's a lot easier if you have an IT department. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good so, point. So as much as I like to hype up having a test bed, have an IT, IT department first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some brains that can totally do that by themselves, though. Uh, the article I wanted to get into. Oh, is it okay if I get into yeah, the next go one? go for it, man. Um, this article is from uh, Sloan Review from MIT. Okay. Uh, they talked about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um more towards the business side. So the past bunch of episodes, we've been talking about specifically manufacturing applications for artificial intelligence and machine learning. This one, I want to stray a little bit away from uh, the pure manufacturing side of it and look at a manufacturing is really just a business, right? So mm-hmm. you've got all these other processes, all these other overhead that's required to accept POs, try and generate new business, uh, HR department, all that stuff exists to run a business. Yeah. You just happen to be a manufacturing company, so your specialization is producing parts. A business thrives on financial transactions, and yeah. business is either you know gets makes profit by either selling a good or service, exactly. and we're just in the manufacturing of the goods. Yep. So, and the uh, article talks about um, the AI tools for the business side of okay. things, uh, and it talks about uh, a couple of use cases. So I, I thought it was fairly good article, um, and the. Uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence is kind of embedded into those applications. So they talk about, uh, here's a quote from the article. Uh, for, oh, oh, hold on. Before we get into it, there's a new buzzword. Tell the me. The new buzzword is enterprise cognitive computing. Dude, cognitive <laughs> in general. The people love throwing love cognitive. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. You know, I heard cognitive a while back, like yep. when graduating college and like looking for a job, everybody's like, well, do you have cognitive problem solving skills? <laughs> and it's like, shut up, man. That just means you can... Never mind. But like, like they're using cognitive uh, automation yep. is like the term that they're using for like third gen robotics. Yep. So, you know, we're going from industrial robots to collaborative robots. And the next step, implementing AI in a collaborative robot will be called cognitive robotics sure. or cognitive automation. And yep. It's like, shut up, man. <laughs> That you can't do that because a cognitive robot is still a cobot. It's still, we need a new. Yeah. We need a new term, man. Yeah. So uh, uh, let's see. Enterprise cognitive uh, computing (ECC) 
Uh, ECT applications can automate repetitive uh, formulaic tasks and in so doing deliver orders of magnitude improvements in the speed of information analysis and the reliability of accuracy of outputs. There's a couple of key terms in there that I want to highlight, right? So basically they're applying machine learning or artificial intelligence, whatever, depending on whatever uh, layer you're working in. Sure. But uh, they hit on automate repetitive formulaic tasks, right? So they're jumping right into the applications of they're not solving uh, cancer through artificial intelligence. They're not, you know, uh, improving the world magically. They're saying we're just automating processes so less humans are involved in this. Yeah. They're taking um, care of the busy work. Yeah, exactly. And then the the second part of it is the reliability and accuracy of the output, right? So they've got this agent that's suggesting things that's helping you solve this problem faster and quicker, right? So it's yeah. just like if I'm putting a robot uh, to machine uh, to attend a machine, so you, a human doesn't have to load the material, the our AI is doing that automated task for you. Uh, and they hit on a couple of good use cases on I'm the business side. Um, so let's see. Um, I talk about um, uh, call centers. So the first layer before you actually get to human is some level of bot that uh, will handle your call. Uh, the use case that they talk about solves like 90% of the uh, calls, but they're able to go to 24-hour uh, support, mm-hmm. 365 days a year, yeah. theoretically through that. So I thought that was pretty handy. Um, process uh, Loan processing uh, to re- help reduce fraud uh, was another application. Uh, legal applications for developing case precedents. I thought this was really interesting, and there's potential applications in manufacturing. So if a job shop is receiving purchase orders or receiving jobs, this uh, legal application is basically that of, I have this new thing. Have I done this before in the past? Right. Right. So comparing what I have now to my other cases is basically what they're doing. Right. Uh, and that can help solve, you know, um, uh, bidding, quoting time and reliability and, um, that type of stuff. So the other uh, case, uh, obviously they're talking about investment applications for buy-sell recommendations. Um, so the, the big takeaway here is there's op- opportunities on the business side. Yeah. Uh, it's automating processes. That's what it's meant to do. Uh, and it's a journey. It requires data for you to build these tools. Right. right? So if you have a call center, you're not going to implement this call center right away to, um, to have them talk to a bot. You've got to right. teach the bot all, everything about your company. So you've got to document say, a couple of months' worth of calls, mm-hmm. put that into your uh, agent, into your uh, mathematical model, then the output is your solution, the automated tasks. Yeah. So it's a journey. So that, that's it a is. big takeaway. It's, I think call centers and, like, 800 numbers, like yeah. toll-free numbers, have really come a long way. Like, I agree. You know, you call a number, and sure, you get a you get an automated uh, uh, answer sure. at first, but... You know, I, I think they use it kind of as like a vetting process. Right. right. So if, if you get through enough of the menus and a good one doesn't have too many menus. Right. But like once they determine where you need to go, instead of sending it to a front desk receptionist <laughs> who needs to determine themselves, who may not have that much information right. on, you know, you or who you need to talk to and having them like play the guessing game right. and potentially send you to the wrong person who then has to send you to the right person. <laughs> Instead of talking to three different humans, sure. you talk to a robot who sends you to the right human yep. right away. Correct. And yep. that that's is, valuable. that's really valuable. And, I, and I, that's where, that's the current state. Yep. I think that's where they are now because of stuff like this. And you have layers to that too, right? You have the voice recognition side yeah. of it. So being able to talk to the robot, having it understand what you're saying. Yeah, you don't even need to use the keypad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then making a decision to say, hey, I can't solve this problem, 
but Joe in the back room can. Yeah. Right. So or we know where to send this. Exactly. Yeah. And or or even in some cases, do you even need to talk to a human? Can right. we take can the rope yeah. can yeah. the the machine can the robot take care of this for you right now? Yep. Do you even need to waste another human's time? Yep. Um, you see that a lot on uh, websites that have a very robust chatbot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but to, to create those chatbots, it's got to ingest all that information that you've collected as a human before. You know where I think the next step is? I'm that, listening. Um, instead of call centers and toll-free numbers, yeah. keeping doctors and dentists honest. Oh, uh, maybe. Like, you, you you schedule a doctor's appointment at, like, 10 a.m. Sure. You get there at 9.45 because you want to make sure the check-in's right, and you, <laughs> and then you end up waiting an hour yep. and you don't a nurse doesn't come gather you until 1045 at once they've found your charts or whatever yeah. that means and then they pull you into the room you know take your weight and you know height and then you wait another 15 minutes to actually talk to the doctor who doesn't even make eye contact with you uh like like just <laughs> if i make an appointment at 10 o'clock i want to talk to the doctor at 10 o'clock correct you know if i'm late shame on me yep that's my fault. Uh, but uh, I think I think this kind of automation and AI can help out a lot with uh, a, something like a doctor's office. Improving the user experience. I think that's the next because yeah. calls, man, like we we just talked about calls have come yeah. a long way and they're pretty awesome right now. I agree. I hate going to the doctor. <laughs> I don't think anybody likes. I feel bad. I've got some, a great dentist. So I like much, my dentist. I enjoy. Actually, I enjoy going to the dentist because I could text them wow. to receive a scheduled appointment. Dude, we are so weird. You and I? We're like the probably the only people who like visiting the dentist. Oh, yeah. Think about that, man. That's true. That is kind of whack. What's our next article? All right, man. So one of this awesome little article that is less so an article and more of like a buyer's guide. Yeah. Um, this came up on Tech Trends. Yep. I was surfing through Tech Trends, and I see this... This this title, but anyway, it's it's a it's a buying guide to these like cheap Chinese engraving machines. Okay. And while it's not American manufacturing technology, what's really cool about this is, you know, I'm I'm just looking through this very elaborate guide onto how to buy a good engrave cheap engraving machine that. Does it does will this work for you? It's we're yeah, hobby, yeah. Ho- talking hobbyist level, so okay. like one to two hundred dollars. Wow, uh, CNC engraving machine, and this guide goes into detail on like, so what are you trying to do? How you know what kind of machine do we need to get you for, and and, and so it can be modded to what you're trying to do. That's can the cool. spindles be upgraded? Yeah, and w- even though they're talking right off the bat about engraving machines, sure. These machines can be upgraded to be like, you know, three axis CNC milling machines. Um, They can be, you know, you can swap out the spindle for a laser cutter. They're hugely modular. Sure. Um, The the modularity is the coolest thing about like these (laughs) wish.com CNC machines. It's it's absurd. And I wouldn't want to talk about this at all normally because, you know, we're talking about Chinese equipment. Right. And, you know, we're the Association for Manufacturing Technology for American manufacturers. Um, but in uh, American manufacturing technology builders. But um, the coolest part about this was, you know, I just went to San Francisco not too long ago to visit some uh, some startups who yep. have residencies at Autodesk in uh, San Francisco. And a lot of the startups that are. <laughs> 
working or they're, they're trying to do something or they're doing something that's really innovative sure. in that has anything to do with man, uh, milling right. or engraving or making a CNC machine in general. Sure. They all have one of these oh, as wow. square one, some form or another right. as their first prototype. Okay. And it's one that's like heavily modified. Sure. But they just needed a template to go off of. And what needs to be improved, yeah. everything, but that was their starting point. Yeah, I you think know? you mentioned like a proof of concept. That's yeah. very low entry for uh, testing something out. Yeah, like going back to what I was saying earlier about coding. Yeah. Um, I could never, it, it's impossible to start from scratch. Right. But even if you start with a god-awful, terrible <laughs> example of something, sure, it's easy to point out what needs to be fixed and you just right. tackle what needs to be changed one at a time. Sure. And, and this buying guide goes into that. That's cool. That's a it's handy tool. It's really, really cool. Yeah. I, I can't wait to share that It sounds like it's a link. great uh, way to pick up stuff for a, a small desktop um, test bed or if you're willing whether, to explore that. Dude, whether you just want a little CNC toy to yeah. wrench on in your own garage yep. at home or desktop for that matter or – you have an idea to create your own startup. Right. Or if you want a test bed. Yeah. You know. Want to test a little robot in between uh, this exactly. little machine. That's awesome. That's what this thing's for. Uh, the next article I got is from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. We NIST, love NIST. Right down the street. Gotta love them. Up the street. Don't want to cross Easy that bridge. Easy drive, man. Not not during rush hour. That'll kill you. No, we're going the we're going against it. Uh, I guess. It sucks either way for me. Fair enough. Uh, so they talk about the economics of additive manufacturing. So this is a, a research paper that was published in 2013, uh, and it's still very relevant today. And they talk about the overall macroeconomics about um, uh, additive manufacturing. It has a couple of key elements that are still super relevant today. Uh, so it covers uh, uh, current state, you know, what what was going on in terms of technologies, who the stakeholders are, uh, potential use cases. And change agents. Um, and I have a really good excerpt from the abstract. Uh, let's see. Change agents for the additive and manufacturing industry can focus their efforts on three primary areas to advance this technology. Cost reduction, uh, accelerating the realization of benefits, and increasing the benefits of additive manufacturing. So before I read the rest of it, I thought those are really key things that, say, the technology creators of additive equipment can really focus on is, hey, your equipment's expensive. Yeah. That stuff has got to come down. Now, some of it's... Mm, I mean, you're building big environmental chambers plus the lasers. Yeah. There is going to be a lower threshold, but man, it's expensive to get into. And we're uh, talking about edge technology, so yep, it's and always going to be expensive. Uh, the realization of benefits. So, if I buy a piece of equipment, being able to get to a more profitable state, and the uh, what are the benefits of if I do grow something and then additively manufacture it? What is the benefit to the end user? Right. So, that whole ecosystem of hey, these things could be better need to be realized sooner, either before you start cutting chips, before you start melting parts, before you start thinking about uh, designs. Uh, so that that whole ecosystem needs to improve on. And then later on in the abstract, it talks about a significant impact on these areas may be achieved through uh, the reduction in the cost of systems, uh, utilization, material cost, which is still, mm, oh, I, would, yeah. I wouldn't say it's outrageous, but it's not the best. Uh, facilitating the production of large products. Yeah, we've seen that there. Size limitations of additive still. Um, there also is a need for standardized model for cost gener- cost categorization and product quality and reliability testing. I think that cost categorization is pretty solid. So being able to understand 
how much a part will cost, uh, especially when you look at metals. Yeah. Um, I think I think we're getting there, but if you look at like the full processing of from the concept to getting on a part, getting a part and final assembly, that whole rationalization of how much it costs versus uh, traditional manufacturing, I think it's got a, a ways to go. So the article is pretty good. It's a fairly long read. It's like 50 some pages, but it goes into <laughs> some, uh, it's a good airplane read. I highly recommend <laughs> it. Uh, it does get into a little bit of uh, uh, some mathematical equations when it talks about change agents and things awesome. like that. Awesome. Um, but I highly recommend just taking a glimpse of this because it does highlight some of the things that need to be improved in additive. And that's where I think additive has some negative light to that where there's still too much hype behind it. Um, working with a company that presented uh, uh, the pros and cons of additive manufacturing at a Summit a while ago. Well, and, in 2013, there was still a lot of hype There's still a lot of additive. Hype. I'd say there's still enough hype that uh, companies are – um, making bad business decisions on additive manufacturing. Right now, still? I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Some of it could be carryover. I mean, it's, so, they're so probably just not enough in the know. The guys that presented in January at one of our committee meetings talked about uh, several companies that have shut down because of their exploration into additive manufacturing. Oh. So some of that is carryover from you know a couple of years ago where they just haven't been able to get new business, but it's a bad, in the end, it's a bad business decision, so... Yeah, I definitely recommend this read if you're exploring getting into additive as part of your core business. Now, if you're doing it to support tooling and things like that, prototyping, man, eh, that's a more capex exercise. But yeah. if you want to make it a core part of your core business, this is a strong read. Is there does this um does this paper? It sounds like uh, does this go into the standards behind additive at all? Or 2013, uh, that was still before standards really yeah, started. Yeah, I mean, getting... there's still the growth of standards within additive. I mm-hmm. think it does mention the need. I mean, it does mention the needs for it, like uh, standards in terms of reliability testing and then the uh, standards for reliability or um, quality testing. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't highlight the issues that are becoming more prevalent. So uh, in the past couple of years, we've seen a huge growth that has gone into production testing. So being able to consistently test the same part over and over again is a big problem now. Right. They're CTing every single part that gets made, which is expensive. And while you could say it's automated somehow, there's still some level of interpretation that goes on yeah. that there are not strong standards on. And I don't think I don't I'd imagine it's not the easiest or it's it's probably pretty difficult to batch test additively produced parts. I mean, it unless you're making a lot of multiple parts in one. Print. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So there's still questions about should I hip the parts? Uh, should I do I need a stress relief? <laughs> there's still some very fundamental questions on the value of some of these things. So I was at America Makes uh, TRX meeting uh, a week yeah. or two ago in Texas, and they talked about some of the foundational issues that are still prevalent, which is interesting because I feel like castings, yeah. the casting industry has kind of solved some of these issues or either accepted that we're just going to do this as part of our norm. Uh, and I feel like additive it still has a lot to learn from the casting industry. Let me ask you a more basic question because um, you just mentioned hipping and uh, stress relief. Yeah. Um, does cryogenic treatment of a part is that does that fall under stress relief because you're trying to align the molecules of a part in a more friendly, stable manner after yeah. a production? That's a good question. I would say conceptually yes, but in Writings and in, in actual application, no. I feel like cryogenics is its own uh, material subset. Okay. So 
usually when in most of the literature, when you say heat treating, it's an elevated temperature yeah. cycle. Cryogenics being negative temperature is not grouped in the same category as that. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I do like make some cryogenically treated rotors, though. <laughs> or shotgun barrels. So. <laughs> All right. What's the last um, article you got there, Steve? Last one I got is a fun one. Um, it is metrology used in the motorcycle industry. Yeah. So um, it, when you look at the timeline 20 years ago, and I would say for myself, not even 10 years ago, a brand, an Austrian motorcycle brand, KTM, mm-hmm. was relatively unheard of. Yeah, they were known for their off-road stuff. A lot of stuff is new to me, even sure. still today. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, if you said KTM makes a car today, yeah. be like, who is KTM? <laughs> and they and do they, have a car. They're, like, they're Austrian. And they're the, like, uh... Austria makes, <laughs> I know Austria makes the Glock, sure. but <laughs> they make a car. I hope it's as reliable as a Glock. Um, but, um. Uh, KTM yep. is a European brand um, that makes pretty affordable motorcycles yep. for um, you cons- for Consumer, considering that yeah. they are a European motorcycle brand. I mean, they're up there in terms of price with, you know, the, the equally innovative uh, or seeming really innovative Japanese motorcycles. Sure. Um, but uh, KTM is really like came out of nowhere and okay. like an established uh in an industry where there's a lot of established brands right. and a lot of innovative established brands right. like you know your honda your yamaha kawasaki suzuki right. um the and then can... get get to outside of japan you know ducati <laughs> sure. triumph um bmw yep um you know, those are the innovative brands that a lot of people think of, and they've been around for a long time. Sure. And nobody's really heard of KTM. Uh, in a mar- from a marketing standpoint, it was genius for them to come out with, I guess, 10 years ago, right. the uh, KTM Crossbow, which yep. was a street legal go-kart. The open air um, Yeah, that yeah. thing That thing was is still really awesome, even though it kind of like, it's kind of phased out not phased out but like nobody really talks about it anymore but yeah. it's still awesome i mean aerial adam has the same problem people think about the aerial adam people you know the other thing that kind of um eclipsed the aerial adam is the uh bac, the mono. BAC mono that's that thing my looks dream really car <laughs> i love that you can't put anybody else in it and there's yeah. no storage space i love that's... how when i go to the website and i'm like how much does this cost <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it really is like a four-wheeled motorcycle because it's got the sequential gearbox yeah, yeah you know it doesn't have some automatic or a manual it's a sequential gearbox it's, so expensive, though. it's a four-wheeled motorcycle it is really <laughs> expensive for what it is but their rationale is like it's it's bespoke to you oh, like, okay you know, it only seats one person and it can only fit one person because we have to size you up before we make oh. it. And, you know, everything's made out of carbon fiber. Sure. And performance wise, even though it's only a naturally aspirated like 2.5 liter four cylinder. I don't know if it's 2.5. Sure. Naturally aspirated four cylinder. It still goes. It, it, it does. It has a zero to 60 time equal to a McLaren P1, wow. which is a million dollar plus <laughs> supercar. So when you think about that. $100,000 for the BAC, BAC mono is a yeah. deal. Anyway, we have totally digressed. <laughs> back to back inspection. To, back to motorcycle metrology. Yeah. KTM, in this like kind of like um, uh, piece that's just on KTM, 
they're like, so how did, how did you guys blow up? How did you guys, you know, seemingly come out of nowhere in an industry that is dominated by so many other established brands? And it's saturated by a lot of other brands that, right. that you know, are both innovative and have been around forever. Um, not you, Harley Davidson. But um, <laughs> how, how did you do it? And they were like, we didn't really do anything special. We yep. just we use really high end. Manu- uh, metrology hmm. inspection equipment to have world dominating quality assurance. <laughs> That's awesome. A customer will never see a poorly produced part on anything that we make. That's cool. So if there's if anything, you know, it's just the the point what, that they are trying to convey that I'm trying to convey here is. They're not the most innovative. Sure. And they own that. What they are, though, is they will ensure that nothing bad leaves their factory, <laughs> which is really cool. They're really uptight about their quality assurance, which sure, is awesome. Sure. So maybe another way to phrase it, they're innovative in their metrology. Yeah, yeah. they are. Yeah, and that's cool. I like that. It is really cool. Be so, good at what you do. Yeah. So we can find links to all of these articles that yep. Ben and I talk about in the description Fall that will pair along with this podcast. Yep. Um, you can reach out oh, to Ben on before you get that far. Okay. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the MT360 conference. Oh, of course. Uh, so if you want to understand the latest transformative technology getting into manufacturing, check out mt360conference.com. Also, if you want to hear from Steve on a regular basis, uh, we've uh, created the MT360 Tech Report. That That's gets, right. That gets published every week. Uh, you can also sign up for that at mt360conference.com slash blog. It's a good little snippet of tech trends it's that awesome. I am pushing out with my own Bare hands. Uh, <laughs> with my own spin on yeah, like, you yeah. know, what you're gonna be reading. It's not full access to tech trends. It's a nice little snippet, like some what I would like to think is the best of. But it's <laughs> the other good thing is it's free. It's free. And you get to see Steve's face at the bottom of the letter. <laughs> And I get to quote somebody fun every week. So where can they find uh, more information on Steve? They can find that. They can see all those links in the description because I don't have the websites off the top of my head. They can reach out to you on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just LinkedIn. No Just Twitter. LinkedIn. I, For God's why sakes. do I always think you have a Twitter? I do, but it's personal. <laughs> and I use that to follow my teachers, uh, my daughter's teachers at school. Well, I know this about your LinkedIn. On your LinkedIn on a weekly basis, you do repost uh, retweet, if you will, my uh, <laughs> my weekly testbed updates. That's correct. So uh, you can find you can also find my uh, blog and my testbed updates at swarfysteve.blogspot.com. And that's enough. That's yeah. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>